I'm happy and thankful to have the opportunity to speak. I would have been saying that I'm opening up the book of Colossians, but again, because of all that was happening in my life, we had to do a switch. And uh, Alan actually got a chance to be the first one to speak from Colossians. He spoke from the second half of Colossians 1, and now we're going to back up and speak from the first half, which is fine. Um, This is a great book. It's a book, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time by way of an introduction. I'm going to assume that you're perfectly capable of looking up all the introductory material if you're dying to do that. But I'll, I'll briefly mention a little bit about it. It's written by Paul. We, we think that it's written by Paul both because it claims to be written by Paul multiple times within the book. And for most of us, that that's good enough. But, you know, in, in case people have questions about that, it's also contains with it references to many, many people who are sort of known associates of Paul's. Um, it's closely, closely linked with the book of Philemon, which even the more liberal scholars these days would pretty much universally say that's Paul. If there's any book that's written by Paul, it's Philemon and Philemon and Colossians are, are very closely linked in many ways. And there's very early external evidence from, from the, uh, some of the early leaders in the church that very definitely link it to the apostle Paul. Uh, so we believe that Paul is the human author of this book. And of course, I say human author because we understand at least I understand, and I, I hope you do too, that, that scripture tends to have a dual authorship in a sense. Um, we read in Peter that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Uh, it's men who wrote the book, and we see sometimes the personality and, and the experiences of people shining through in the things that they write in scripture. And you certainly see a bit of that uh, in the book of Colossians. But at the same time, it's men moved by the Holy Spirit. It's not just men, you know, even inspired men, writing down what they think is a good idea, uh, but but rather it's God using those men, using their personalities, using their experiences sovereignly in such a way that what is written is what he wants written. And that's what we see in the book of Colossians. It was probably written somewhere around 61 AD during Paul's uh, imprisonment in Rome. Um, may have been written partly to counter false teachings. That's what we get out of it. You know, there's no there's no place where at the beginning of the book, Paul writes, here's why I'm writing it. You know, people read between the lines and decide why they think he wrote it. Uh, again, led of the spirit, but certainly it, it, it appears that there was probably some false teaching in Colossians that needed to be dealt with. We don't know the exact nature of that, by the way. And we need to be careful, I think, in that. It's very, very easy, and scholars do this all the time, um, to to sort of read things back into scripture. And, and we we don't want to do that. That's what's called eisegesis. We want to do exegesis, which is reading things out of scripture. Uh, so, you know, it's easy to look at what we know of some of the heresies that existed in the second century and say, wow, this sort of sounds a little bit like that. I wonder if that's what we're looking at. And then to read some of that back into scripture. And I think we need to be a little careful about how we do that. As I read through the book of Colossians, and uh, I really, really enjoyed going through this wonderful book, I saw three things that seemed to be key points, themes, purposes, um, in the book. One is to teach the preeminence, humanity, and deity of the Lord Jesus and the value of his redemptive work. And that certainly came out in a, a very, very clear way, I think, in some of what uh, Alan was talking about last week from the second half of the chapter. And it comes out in other places in the book also. To encourage believers to press on to become mature in Christ, not letting the Old Testament shadows that point it to Christ control us and not letting modern uh, philosophy stumble us in the attempt to be able to press on. 
And then also in multiple places, both chapter one, chapter four, perhaps some places in between, to inform believers of Paul's love and concern for them, his prayers for them, even though apparently he had never met them in person, as well as his own prayer needs, which are very interesting to read about. Colossians is a book that I believe is very relevant, encourages us, even in our 21st century, to press on to maturity in Christ. It's rich in its portrait of Christ, as well as in practical exhortations and encouragement. So having said that, let's dive in with chapter 1, verse 1. I'm covering the first 14 verses today in the Lord's will, um, and we'll start with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Before we get going on this, let me ask you, how well do you know the ocean? We live pretty close to the ocean, right? I grew up a lot closer to the ocean. I grew up only 20 miles from the ocean. My wife, Linda, she grew up only a few miles from the ocean, but all of us are reasonably close. And I'm going to guess most of us have been to the shore at, at some time or another. Maybe as children, you played in the surf. Okay, and the water splashed around your ankles while your mom or dad watched to make sure you didn't try to go too deep. Maybe as adults, we, we've been there perhaps frequently. Um, but how well do you really know the ocean? Do you know the depths of the ocean? Do you know the moods of the ocean? Do you know the biology of the ocean? Um, do you know all the various parts of it? No, I mean, not completely. There's no one really on this planet who completely understands the ocean. This place is in the ocean that go down seven miles that that's so deep that you could put mount everest on the bottom of that and still have to swim down two miles to get to the summit of mount everest that's how deep it is um we don't know the ocean and i would say that, that it's a good um picture in some ways of the of the word of god um we read the word of god uh we study the word of god and yet can any of us really claim to completely understand it? It's it's deep. It's complex. It's wonderful. I'm not saying that in a way to be off-putting, like don't try, you know, uh, just like the ocean is wonderful to explore and, and know more of, even if we know we'll never know everything of it. The word of God is like that too. And I think these two verses are a great example of that because in my mind, as I was looking at this, I realized I could spend all morning on this. I could just spend all morning on these two verses. I could probably preach for an hour on them, which would mean for 14 verses, I'd be here preaching for seven hours. So I'd be here till about six, six in the evening, which really wouldn't work for my schedule or your schedule. Um, so I'll, I'll try to keep it to more like 40, 45 minutes uh, to, to stay on track. But wonderful riches here. Let's look at this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. So, so notice he says, by the will of God. He wasn't who he was by his own plan. He wasn't self-appointed. He was who he was by the will of God. He was an apostle. That means a sent one. And for Paul, that was in a, a unique sense. Paul wasn't just sent to do God's will. All of us who are believers are in a, in a lesser sense. But he was the one chosen by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to bring the message of the gospel to the Gentiles, which right now in our day, we say, big deal. Okay, of course, to the Gentiles, like almost everyone, you know, Gentile is someone who's not from a Jewish background. 
So almost everyone's not from a Jewish background. Okay, I'm from a Jewish background. I think there's maybe one or two other people here who have a little bit of Jewish heritage in them. The rest, Gentiles, including my dear wife. So what's the big deal? But back then, that was a huge deal. Okay, the gospel going to the Gentiles, that was unheard of. And and Paul was sort of the pioneer. Peter had been the one who actually started that process. But Paul was sort of the pioneer picked by God to do that and to unfold many of the mysteries of God to the Gentiles and plant many, many Gentile churches. Uh, Gentile-based to a large degree churches. Uh, and so he was a especially chosen uh, vessel. But at the same time, as we, as we read that phrase, we should really be asking ourselves, what part am I supposed to have by the will of God in building his church today? You know, Christ said during his lifetime, Matthew 16, I will build my church. That was all yet future at that point. And that includes today. That includes, you know, 2023. Christ is still building his church. What part do you have in the building of his church? We all have different spiritual gifts. We all have different natural gifts. We all have different opportunities and settings we live in, education, yada, yada. You know, we're not all the same. We're not all expected to be doing the same thing. But if we're believers, we're meant to be part of building his church. What part are we doing in that? Um, also looking at this verse, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The other thing that occurred to me is how in the world did that happen? How in the world did that happen? Think about the journey Paul had gone on. Paul had been a fervent persecutor of the church. Okay. If you know the book of Acts, Paul was going door to door, trying to find believers who he could arrest in prison, possibly torture, certainly for many of them, lead them to death. Paul wasn't lackadaisical about this. Paul was fervent. He was out there. He was doing everything he could to find, imprison, and kill believers. That's not the Paul we're reading about here, is it? It was quite a wild journey that God took him on to take him from that, reveal himself in Christ to Paul, transform Paul, and make Paul into an apostle. And it got me thinking about the fact that we too have the opportunity to be on a wild journey in our lives. We're not Paul. Okay, we're not, you know, visiting Damascus and seeing a vision on the way to Damascus like Paul does. Um, but, but think about the wild journey that God can take you on in your life if you're willing to yield to his will. Who knows where he'll lead you? Uh, it's an exciting thing. People somehow get this weird idea that Christianity is sort of like sort of a second class thing. Like, okay, if you want a real meaningful, exciting life, well, don't, don't be a Christian because that's going to be a little bit dull and boring and going to church. And that's not the case. If you're willing to give yourself over to the will of God, you have no idea where that's going to end up leading you. It's the most exciting life in the world. It was an exciting life, sometimes a challenging life, but an exciting life for Paul. Um, something else I want to take out of this. You'll notice that he refers to Timothy as our brother and to the saints and faithful brethren, which is an old fashioned plural term for brothers. In Christ, there was a time in Christian circles, including in this very assembly, um, and I can remember back, I mean, this assembly has been around for long more than 100 years, which is obviously longer than I can remember, um, but I've been going to this assembly now for a few decades, and I think I can remember back to the, to the later part of the early phase of the assembly, where it was very common to call fellow believers here brothers and sisters. You would greet someone, hey, brother, how you doing? Sister, what's going on in your life? That was a common greeting. We don't do much of that anymore. I mean, I'm not saying we never do it, but we don't. Maybe we should. 
maybe we should, but not, not to be spiritually correct. You know, sometimes we, we joke around about, oh, they're doing that, you know, that, that politician is saying that or doing that, or that celebrity is saying or doing that to be politically correct, to say the socially acceptable and expedient thing. But as Christians, we do the same thing, right? I mean, we, we say things and act in certain, certain ways that are seen to be spiritually correct because we want to keep our mask on and, and we want to look good and smell good and all the rest. But that's not why we should be calling people brother and sister. We should be calling people brother or sister, or at least consider doing that. I don't want to make things awkward. I don't want you to feel like, oh, when we leave, you better say brother, Cray- brother Larry, because you don't need to do that. But maybe we should consider it because the fact of the matter is, if we're believers in Christ, then God our, our father. And if two people share the same parent, they're siblings, aren't they? Like by definition. So if we all share God as our father, because we've put our faith in Christ, then we're siblings and seeing each other as brother and sister in Christ is perfectly appropriate. It's exactly what we should be doing. It reminds us that we are family and that we should relate to each other as family, which just as a thought, by the way, probably means relating to each other beyond just Sunday morning. Okay, there's always going to be some siblings that you're closer to in a family. If you have more than one sibling, you may have some siblings that you're closer to than others. Um, But we're all siblings and we should be spending time with each other, at least to some extent, outside of this building on Sunday mornings. I notice that the believers who I have the closest relationship with are the ones who I interact with at some point during the week outside of this assembly. It's not the ones I just see on Sunday mornings. Something else to think about. Um, also, in this wonderful first two verses, which I hope I managed to get through in time to do the rest of the passage, uh, notice what it says to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Did you catch that? They're at Colossae. That's where they live. That's where they gather to worship. But that's not their address in a sense. Their address is that they are in Christ. And I think that's a really vital thing to see. That phrase in Christ in the translation I use, which is the New American Standard, is found 88 different times in the New Testament. Might be slightly different. Your mileage might vary just a little bit in the translation you use, but it's probably going to be pretty close. That's a lot of times. The vast majority of those speak of our salvation, our blessings in Christ, or our position in Christ. And to be in Christ means to be accepted in Christ and associated with Christ in the mind of God. And you might say, oh, that's nice. So that's how God feels about it. But have you ever heard the phrase, perception is reality? Right? Uh, That's been a popular phrase for a number of years these days. I've learned to hate that phrase for a number of reasons. But anyway, perception is reality. The idea is however you perceive reality, that's what reality is, at least for you. And of course, there's an absolute sense in which that's not true. Perception is not reality. I might perceive that I am independently wealthy and I don't need to go to work tomorrow morning. That does not make it a reality. I really do need to go to work tomorrow morning. I don't feel necessarily like doing it, but I'm going to do it anyway, because the reality is that's my job. That's what I'm obligated to do. And I I really could use the paycheck. So I'm going to go to work tomorrow morning. But... What God thinks about something, his perception, is reality. He's the author of reality. What God thinks about something, that 
by definition, is reality. And so if in God's mind, we are accepted in Christ and we are intimately associated with Christ, then we are, regardless of how we feel about things. Now, of course, it's only for those who have trusted Christ as Savior, but it's still true. One way I think about this is my daughter, Ruth. My daughter, Ruth, right now is going to Geneva College. Okay, that's out near Pittsburgh. It's about 400 miles away. So she's got a a temporary mailing address there. If we want to send her a card or a package, you know, we don't address it to our own address, obviously. We we send it to whatever the address is of the college out there by Pittsburgh. But that's not her permanent address. That's not her address for tax purposes. That's not her, you know, that's not the address on her driver's license. You know, her, her more important address is, at least currently, in New Jersey at our home. Um, there's a sense in which we have a, a, a temporary address of wherever we happen to live and wherever we gather together with fellow believers. You know, my, my temporary address is here in New Jersey. Our address as a gathering of believers is here in Fanwood. But our permanent abiding place is in Christ. And so the question I would ask you to consider and that I've had to ask myself to consider as I look at this is, who are you? Who am I? What's of most importance to you? What's your identity? For example, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a friend to some people. I'm a biologist. I'm a professor. By gender, I'm a man. But none of that is what's really of prime, essential importance. Those things are important. Being found in Christ is what matters more than anything else. I am accepted in Christ. I am totally loved by God. I'm in a relationship with him. I'm given grace and guidance on a daily basis from him. And I have no reason to have any fear that since anything I could possibly do to mess that up. Is that true of you? Because if it is, it's pretty wonderful. You know, if it's not true of you, by the way, what in the world is stopping you from turning to him in faith, enjoying his peace, resting in him and not yourself, enjoying his acceptance? That's that's what you should seek more than anything else. And if it is true of us, then that's what we need to remember. That's the essence, essence of who we are. We are in Christ, and we need to keep that in mind. Okay, so <clears throat> I'm already behind, but I'm going to move on. Verse 3. <clears throat> so Paul says, "Let of the Spirit of God, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Now we're going to get several descriptions of the gospel, by the way. So the gospel is the word of truth, gospel, which by the way literally means good news, contains the truth, which has come to you just as in all the world. And obviously he means all the known world of the time. It's con- it has been constantly bearing fruit and increasing, which the gospel tends to do when it's faithfully preached, even as it's been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. And so the gospel tells us about the grace of God, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow beloved bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the spirit. We don't know for sure. But from this reference and others in the book of Colossians, it appears likely that Epaphras may have been the person who first brought the gospel to the town of Colossae. Colossae is located about 100 miles east of um, of Ephesus, 
Ephesus is where Paul preached the gospel and, and where, you know, uh, built a local church by God's grace for a period of about three years or so. And the gospel went out from that center. And Colossae was one of the places that was evangelized, possibly by Epaphras. Paul's thankful for three different things. Their faith in Christ Jesus, their love for other believers, um, who, by the way, did you notice that the believers are called saints? The believers are called saints. That's us. Okay, a saint is not some special, saintly, godly person who after their death is recognized as being such. A saint in the New Testament is the description for any believer. It means a holy one. And it just means someone who is holy in God's sight because of faith in Christ. Their lives may or may not match that. Ideally, their lives do increasingly match that. But we are saints. We have faith in Christ, love for other believers, and hope for the future, a sure hope for the future. Those are three things characteristic of believers. Also notice that faith in the personal work of Christ and love for others as well as obedience to God, as we're going to see later in the chapter, are inseparably linked. And if you want to see a wonderful book in which those three are really tightly linked, go read the book of First John, because in that book you will find faith in God, love for other believers, and obedience to God are so tightly interwound, sometimes it's hard to figure out you know, what's going on in the narrative because they're just so tightly interwound. Those are three things that should characterize believers in an increasing way. The gospel itself, uh, I already mentioned some of the ways it's described, and it's good news. And look, there's many things that are good news, right? Um, if you get the job that you were really hoping for, that may, maybe is going to be the next step in your career or even the first step in your career, that's good news. If you're finding out that you're having a child, assuming you want it to have a child, or maybe for some of us that you're having a grandchild, that's good news too. You find out that your bid on a home that you wanted has been approved. That's great news. But there's a sense in which the gospel is especially good news. And as I thought about this, I was thinking about sort of the alternative to the gospel. And and some of you got saved as children. And so you don't remember, you know, I mean, you've seen it in other people's lives, but you don't remember it in your own. But I didn't get saved as a child. I got saved when I was 22. So I definitely have memories of what it was like to live as a non-believer. And Typically, if you don't know Christ, you sort of have one or two modes, and very often you end up blending them and going back and forth a bit. You either live somewhat fatalistically, just sort of accepting your fate, like, hey, it is what it is. This is what the world is. Nothing we can do about it. I just have to man up and accept it. Or you're busy working really hard to control your circumstances to protect and provide for yourself or for the people that you love and care about. And, and that's what you spend your whole life doing. And it's a not an easy road. And I think it's a road that gets harder the longer you go on that road and the older that you get. I'm thankful that the Lord laid hold of my life when I was only 22. Um, my grandmother, she didn't get saved until she was 86. So she was on that road for a long time. And it was a hard road for her. She had a lot of difficulties in her life. Um, but the gospel gives us an alternative, a, a different road to be on. Not free of difficulty. If you're saved, and if any of you have been saved for a number of years, you know that doesn't mean a life of no problems, Um, but one in which it's God who is working in and through your life for good. You don't have to work everything out for good. God works everything out for good. It's It's a life in which you have miraculous peace, joy in your relationship with him, the ability to reach out and help others with his help. 
The entrance to that road, of course, is repentance, realizing that we've been living our lives in rebellion. Romans said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which leads to death, both now and eternally. The wages of sin is death. Realizing that the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, as it describes in John chapter one, died in our place, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God and receiving him as savior. This is something I I think probably most, if not all people hearing are are already believers, but it's possible that someone here or someone who'll listen to this later on is not. And if so, I'd encourage you consider this alternative road, the good news of the gospel and how you can get onto that road. And you can back up the recording to find out what that is. You know, for those of us who know Christ, the application I think is why aren't we telling more people about this? Why aren't we telling more people about this amazing gospel? Um, just two weeks ago, right? A lot of people were really excited about the Super Bowl. I mean, whether you were fans of the Chiefs or fans of the Eagles, a lot of people were really excited about the Super Bowl. Talking about the Super Bowl was a really easy thing to do, right? Probably still is for a lot of people. Maybe it went the way you wanted it to. Maybe it didn't go the way at that last minute that you wanted it to. Um, if we're going to share the good news with other people, which is far more important and wonderful than talking about the Super Bowl, exciting as that may be, then we need to know about it, we need to understand it well, and we need to be excited about it. And one hint that I want to give you that might be helpful is practice. Talk to people about the gospel. Start off with other believers. You know, Start with a friendly audience. But, but actually, don't just think about it. Talk about it. Talk about the Lord Jesus. Talk about the gospel. Talk about how wonderful it is to know him and what it means to know him from a scriptural point of view. If you can do that, confidently and excitedly with other believers, then it'll be a whole lot easy come during the week when there's the scarier prospect of having to talk to someone who doesn't know the Lord about the gospel. Obviously, we need to live out the gospel also and not just talk about it, but still we should be excited about it. Let's move on. Uh, Verse nine, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, heard about their, their faith, their hope, their love, We've not ceased to pray for you. We've not ceased to pray for you. Now, obviously, he can't mean that literally, right? Paul slept, as far as I know. Paul spent time sleeping, I'm sure, every night. So he wasn't literally praying for them 24 hours a day. But he was praying for them on a frequent, continual basis. We've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I was trying to do that sort of on one breath because that's all one sentence. In fact, that sentence doesn't end in verse 14. That sentence goes on to the passage that um, Alan spoke about last week. It's all one sentence. Some people really go crazy on this book trying to figure out where does the prayer end and Paul start talking about the teaching he wants to do about Christ. And I would say, I don't think there is a division. It's all one sentence in the original. I don't think there is a division. I think Paul started praying or writing down his prayer to to the Colossians. Um, and, and then as he did that, he just naturally bridged over 
to talking about how amazing and wonderful the Lord Jesus is without even taking a breath. And as God worked through his spirit, him talking about the Lord Jesus was exactly what the Colossians needed. So I don't think there is a break there. Um, most of us, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I, I hope you'd all raise your hand. We've all seen babies, right? You're all familiar with babies? I love babies. I think babies are cool. Okay, some people are really into kids and some people tolerate kids. I love kids. Um, and babies especially. They're about as cute as cute can be. But as much as we love babies, would you want a baby to stay a baby? Like, how would you feel about a kid who was born cute as a button and then they're not growing? They're not developing. They're just sort of staying static. Pretty quickly in our mind, the alarm bells would start to go off and we'd be starting to want to go see a doctor really soon. Or if it's someone else's baby, encourage them to go see a doctor really soon. Because we say there's something drastically wrong. Babies are cute, but they're meant to grow. They're meant to end up becoming adults one day. Salvation in Christ is wonderful, but we're meant to grow. And this is an amazing prayer about spiritual growth that we can embrace for our own lives and that we might want to consider emulating as we pray for other people. Excuse me a moment. By the way, just as a thought for a moment, in case I think about a lot of these things, maybe you do or you don't, but one thing that came to mind as I was thinking about this was, why am I praying? Why pray? Because after all, doesn't God already know everything? Doesn't he know every need before I say a word about it? Doesn't he want what the best thing is? Isn't he able to do the best thing? So why can't I just kick back and in faith, just say, God, it's all in your hands and just watch him work everything out for good in my life and other people's lives and not bother praying? Why do I need to pray? And, you know, there's a lot of answers for that. I mean, for one thing, we're specifically told to pray. And if we want to be obedient children to the Lord, we'll do what he asks us to do. Um, but also, I see prayer as an amazing opportunity. Prayer is an opportunity to show our faith. When I pray and I talk to God, I'm in a very real way, especially if I'm alone. I mean, it's one thing to pray in public. Then maybe you're just praying to look good to other people. But if I'm praying by myself and taking up my, my busy life, spending time in prayer, that's a very clear way of showing my faith. I believe that God is real. I believe he cares about me. I believe he knows what's best. I believe he wants what's best and he can do what's best because I'm spending time talking to him about my concerns. It's an opportunity to grow our faith as we do that. It's an opportunity to share fellowship with God as well as to seek his help. So prayer is a wonderful opportunity. And this particular prayer is full of substantive requests. Some of our prayers are so general that you'd have no way of knowing if they ever get answered. Do you pray like that sometimes? So general that it's like you could say God answered them, but there's really no way to know if he did answer them. You know, Lord, bless so-and-so. Well, how in the world do you know if that happened? You know, if I say, Lord, bless Pearl, Lord, bless Bev, how do I know if that happened? That's a, I mean, it's not a bad thing to say, but it's, it's, it's a very general, generic thing. How do you know if it happened? You know, it's good to have substantive requests. And Paul has some very substantive requests for Christian maturity, the Christian maturity that we're all meant to find. And I would say, and I might be wrong here, but his requests, even though they are all part of one sentence, 
do feel like they build on each other. And I'll, I'll try to mention that as we go along. So the first request is that they be filled with the knowledge of his will, that's God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And this, to me, really resonated. The Christian life is not, contrary to what some people think, a list of do's and don'ts. You know, if you do all the do's and avoid all the don'ts, then you're good. And and that's not what it's meant to be. I know that's what it was like for me, to be honest, early on. A lot of legalism in my life drove me a little crazy. Uh, But that's not what it's meant to be. The, The Christian life is meant to be a relationship. And in asking that the believers be filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding, that idea of spiritual wisdom and understanding, to me, implies that you want people to understand the will of God for themselves, to clearly see what God wants them to do or not to do, and to have his enablement and ability to seek to and be able to start doing those things, that, that you see it for yourself. So that, that I more and more I'm doing the will of God, not because someone said I have to do it, but because I, de- I understand what it is and I desire to do that. That doesn't mean we need to wait for perfect understanding and, and intense desire before we obey God. That's not the case. But, but we should be praying for ourselves and for others, for spiritual wisdom and understanding of his will. And as we do that, well, what will that lead to? Well, that will lead to the next thing that he prays about, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. See, as we, as we better understand what God wants for us in spiritual wisdom and understanding, we can start living in a way that's more in accordance with who he is. There's very similar ideas in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, and 1 John, the first few verses of 1 John, that we can live in a way that pleases him and bears fruit for him. And that idea of pleasing him is amazing. You know, in, in Hebrews eleven six, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. That implies that with faith, it is possible to please him. It's possible to bring joy to his heart. Think about that. Think for, first about how insignificant, in a sense, we are. If, if you could take the whole planet Earth and make a model of it that was the size of a grapefruit, pretty decent-sized fruit, but still, if, if you had a model of the entire Earth the size of a grapefruit, okay, about that big, which, wow, lifting my arm this high is a little hard today, okay, well, if you could try to picture yourself walking on that surface of the earth relative to the size of a grapefruit, you'd be so small that the most powerful microscope in the world would not be able to image you. We are tiny, insignificant specks on a planet that is 24,000 miles around and somewhere between seven and 8,000 uh, miles across. Compared to that, we are just the most tiny, insignificant specks. And our planet is one relatively small planet in an immense solar system, which is one at best average side solar system in a huge galaxy, which is only one average size galaxy in an immense universe filled with galaxies to the brim. We still haven't found all of them. So if you think about that from that perspective, we're we're sort of little insignificant things, aren't we? And yet how we live our lives can affect the emotional state of almighty God who created all those galaxies. How I live my life can bring him joy or sorrow. 
doesn't change how much he loves me. If I'm a believer, if I put my faith in Christ, nothing can change my acceptance and love by him in Christ. But how I live my life can change the joy or the sorrow that I bring to his heart. And as I walk worthy of him, which I can only do if I'm filled with knowledge of his will and spiritual understanding, which, of course, I can only do if I'm a believer in the first place, then I can bring joy to his heart. As I do that, the next thing happens, increasing in the knowledge of God, increasing in the knowledge of God. You might think that would be first, and this is the sense in which it is, because we need to know God before we can do any of these. We need to know him in Christ as Savior in a personal way, not just in a generic way. But as I'm knowing his will, walking to please, seeking to please him, bearing fruit, as I'm walking in that way, I grow in my knowledge of him. I don't think there's any way to really get to know the Lord in a deep way apart from walking with him in trust and obedience. You know, you can read the Bible till you're blue in the face. You can go to seminary. You can learn tons of knowledge. And that's all it's going to be. It's all it's going to be. It's just going to be knowledge. It's not going to be a real relationship with the knowledge of the Lord. This is what we need desperately. As this happens, of course, the next thing happens, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. As we're strengthened with God's power, which happens as we're doing all these things, knowing his will, obeying him, bearing fruit for him, bringing him joy, coming to know him better. We're strengthened with his power, according to his limitless might. To what? To do what? So I can do some amazing things for Christ? Well, I, I think the Lord does give us help to do amazing things. But notice, that's not what's in view here. Unexpectedly, it's not for the ability to do things. It's for the ability to have steadfastness and patience. You know, life can be tough. And living as a Christian doesn't necessarily make it easier. In some ways, it makes it harder. But we can find steadfastness and patience according to his glorious might as we walk with him. And that's what we desperately need. Where's my next page? Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light with joy giving thanks to the Father. You think about it. We are redeemed sinners and yet we are heirs. In Romans 8, it says we are uh, heirs children of God, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. This is amazing. We are heirs of all God is and all he has. That's a lot to give thanks for. And the fact that he's qualified us for that leads us into the last thing in the prayer. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I should mention, by the way, just in passing, my particular translation, which is based on a little bit different manuscript trans, uh, um, tradition than uh, the New King James, omits the word redemption in his blood. But, you know, you travel a little bit further down the chapter and it's in verse 20 anyway, so it doesn't really uh, change the sense of the passage. But we do have redemption. It is through his blood. And we do have re forgiveness of sins. We've been delivered when we've turned to Christ. We've been taken out of the realm of Satan who is described in Ephesians 2, John 14, and possibly some other places as basically the ruler of this world. He's a usurper. He's ruling this world, you know, effectively 
but one day that's going to be put an end to, uh, we're transferred out of his kingdom into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And he's our king now, and he's the one we look to as our king. And this is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And it's in him we have redemption and forgiveness. So in conclusion, to start pulling this together finally. First of all, I hope you see that Colossians is an amazing book. It's only four chapters long. It's pretty short, but it is incredibly rich in content about who the Lord Jesus is, what it means to know him, what it means to walk with him, practical ideas. It's very, very rich. We are going to be in this book in the Lord's will until almost Easter, right before Easter in the Lord's will, there'll be a message on Philemon very closely related to this book. Um, But other than that, we're going to be in this book until Easter. So let me encourage you, take the time to read this book. Take the time to read this book. What I would really strongly encourage you to do is go home today, not tomorrow, but today, and reread this first chapter. Okay, reread this first chapter covering the material that I just spoke about now and that Alan spoke about last week. And think for at least a few minutes about what does it say about who God is? What does it say about who I am? What is what encouragement or admonitions does it give about how I can walk with the Lord? Because I guarantee you, you know, as a as a professor in college, I know how this plays out. If I give a lecture and my students don't go home and look back over the material, 80% of what I said will be gone out of their minds within days. And probably close to a hundred percent of what I said will be gone out of their minds within a within a week. The fact of the, and and by the way, remembering everything I said is not mission critical, but seeing what the Lord has to say to you in first, uh, in this first chapter of Colossians, that is mission critical. And so I would encourage you, go back home, read that chapter, think it through. It doesn't need to take all day, 15, 20 minutes, maybe half an hour at most, probably if you really get into it, um, longer if you want, but it doesn't need to. But as you do that, as you engage with scripture, it will transform you. And you might want to consider maybe before next week, our brother Steve's going to come and speak to us next week, read Colossians 2. As far as I know, that's what he's going to be speaking on, right? Colossians 2. That's the plan, at least to some extent. So take a look at Colossians 2. So you're sort of primed the pump of your mind for what God might want to say as as Steve's opening up the word of God. Remember my earlier question. Who are you? What's the core of your identity? Sadly, if you've not accepted Christ, I'll tell you who you are. You're dead. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. Go ahead and read the first three verses when you have a chance. You're dead. You may not feel very dead. You may not look very dead, which is good. But spiritually, in God's eyes, you're dead. That's your identity. And you desperately need Christ. And I hope that you would embrace him even today. But if you do know Christ as Savior, if you do know Christ as Savior, then it is a reality, whether it feels like it or not, that you were delivered from Satan's domain. You are redeemed. You are forgiven based on his person and work. You're accepted and beloved by God in Christ, your permanent address now and forever. How we perceive this varies. For some of this, this is a very dramatic thing, and and we're very dramatic about how we think about it and talk about it. That's me. I I tend to be sort of a dramatic person for, for better or for worse. You know, dramatically bad sometimes, dramatically good. You know, I I, I, I tend to be like that. Um, for other people, you, you have a little bit more of a placid personality. There's not so much drama in your life. It's just something you quietly accept and you quietly appreciate and you're quietly growing in Christ. And that's fine, too. We don't all have to be the same personality wise by any means. We're all meant to become more like Christ. But that doesn't mean that we lose our personalities. 
but all believers should learn to view being in Christ as the core of who they are. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord uh, and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and in the day of eternity. This should be the goal in our lives, to grow in grace and knowledge of him. Um, something I think that can help as we do that is prayer to pray consistently and substantively to the Lord for ourselves, obviously. And I have prayed through this prayer in uh, uh, Colossians 1 multiple times since I started studying this passage and to pray for others. You don't need to slavishly follow the words in this chapter. You certainly can expand your prayers way beyond that. But this prayer is probably a good model, at least to start you off and maybe kickstart your prayer life in terms of substantively praying for spiritual growth for yourself and for the people that you pray about. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your love. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we are, as those who have put our faith in Christ, if we have, we are children of God. We are heirs of Christ. We are found in Christ, accepted in him, loved in him, Nothing we could possibly do to improve on that or to mess that up because it's all based not on who we are, what we've done. It's all based on your son, the Lord Jesus. We are beggars who have come and accepted that wonderful gift of salvation. And Lord, we ask for your help that as those who have accepted that gift, if we have, that we would grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, that we would grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding of your will, that we would walk worthy and bear fruit for you, that we would bring joy to your heart, that we would increase in the knowledge of God, that we would find joy in you, that we would find strength and grace to help in time of need in you, that we would appreciate the wonderful redemption that we have in your son. We thank you so much for him in Christ's name. Amen.